This is The Road Less Travelled, presented by Nikki Shea. G'day everyone, welcome to the Road Less Travel podcast. Nikki Shea back in the seat with you this week. A little croaky and a little foggy, but certainly getting better. Thanks so much for everyone who has sent in messages to say a uh, nice new voice you've got there, Nikki. If you'd like to send an email or interact with us, you can drop me an email, fatcat, where the P-H-A-T-C-A-T, so fatcat at iinet.net.au. SMS is 0427528467. You can follow us on social media through Facebook and Instagram. On Instagram, search for the Road Less Travelled Podcast 2021, that is us, and just search for the Road Less Travelled Podcast with Nikki Shea if you're doing a Google search as well. You can listen to the show on Apple iPhone. Uh, iTunes, which is now Apple Podcasts. You can listen through Spotify, iHeartRadio and Google Podcasts. And as I said on previous episodes, if you are searching, doing a Google search, search for the Road Less Travel Podcast with Nikki Shea and that's where you'll find us. You can also find all the backlog of previous shows, season one and halfway through season two we're up to now, on our website, which is Fat Cat Media, P-H-A-T-C-A-T, fatcatmedia.com.au. Welcome to the Road Less Travel Podcast. If you've never been here before, welcome to you. If you're a seasoned veteran, welcome back. Great to have your company. And as always, if you've got something you'd like to share with us, if you've got an upcoming trip, you've just done a trip, or you've got something you'd like us to feature, please don't hesitate to drop me an email or an SMS or give me a call on 0427528467. Always happy to grab your feedback. Now this week, again, because of being crook, we've had to do our trips close to home. I had a few days off work and haven't been well at all. So this last um, trip that we decided to do was a day trip out of home base in Melbourne. And I've got to say, it was absolutely fantastic. Been there once before, but never really had the opportunity to wander about. And it's Port Nepean National Park. Now, Port Nepean is located about 110, 115 kilometres from the Melbourne CBD. Visitors can catch a train from Melbourne to Frankston, then a bus to Portsea, which stops at the National Park entrance. If you're driving, you simply take the Eastern Freeway, the M3, then the Mornington Peninsula Freeway onto Point Nepean Road and follow through to Portsea. The Queenscliff to Sorrento passenger ferry operates on the hour, 7am to 6pm. There's extended hours during summer and that's just a short 10-minute drive from Sorrento to the National Park. Port Nepean National Park is open daily. Vehicles can enter from 7am to 5pm or 6 to 6 in daylight savings time and exit at any time. Pedestrians and cyclists can enter at any time as well. There is an information centre there, the Port Nepean Information Centre. It is open daily except for Christmas Day. And the Gunners Cottage is open and selected buildings in the quarantine station are open for the public to explore daily as well. You can also land your boat. It is permitted in designated boat landing areas in front of the quarantine station only. And access from the shore to ocean beaches and marine national parks is prohibited, obviously due to the conservation efforts and for safety reasons. There is swimming at Bay Beach and at the quarantine station. That's where it's permitted. However, be very aware of strong currents and rips. So while you're there... What is it all about? Well, it was named after the British politician and the colonial administrator, Sir Evan Nepean. Port Nepean National Park is the most westernly point on the Mornington Peninsula. You can grab an audio tour from the Port Nepean Information Centre where you can learn about the rich history of the quarantine station, Fort Nepean and their surroundings. 
You can also jump aboard the Hop On Hop Off Hop Off Port Nepean Shuttle Service. That's it is an awesome little initiative. It runs between the quarantine station and Fort Nepean. It's a really great way to explore all the highlights of the Port Nepean National Park. You can also hire a bike or hire an e-bike from Bay Play and get around the park more. And also for for, for all the um, bike hire inquiries, you can do that through bayplay.com.au. The Port Nepean Quarantine Station, that consists of 50 heritage-listed buildings with artefacts dating back more than 150 years. Selected buildings are open daily for visitors to explore, and during its colourful history, it had protected Victoria from diseases during immigration influxes. It served as an army base and finally housed refugees from the Kosovo in 1999. Fort, that's F-O-R-T, Fort Nepean, is Australia's best example of military fortifications and engineering. You can explore the extensive tunnel complex which connects the historic gun emplacements. It is a ripping place to visit. Port Nepean National Park sits on one of the most treacherous coastlines in Victoria. There is an estimated 130 shipwrecks which lie in the Port Phillip area, with over 50 reported to have occurred in the Rip, which is a triangle bounded by Port Nepean, Port Point Lonsdale and Shortlands Bluff. You have to watch for the giant freight and cruise ships that pass by. If you do a detour from Defence Road and discover a network of beach, coastal and inland walking trails, you can follow the Bay Beach Walk to see the Quarantine Cattle Jetty at Observatory Point or the Range Area Walk to the Monash Light Tower for panoramas across to Bass Strait, Port Phillip and the Melbourne skyline. So Port Nepean Quarantine Station offers a glimpse into the early European history of Victoria It was established in 1852 and you can explore the nearby 50 heritage listed buildings where you can learn about life at this once remote location and the station's critical role in protecting Australia from introduced diseases. A visit to the quarantine station offers a real unique opportunity to see how a large number of new Australians spent their first few weeks in their new country. This community of hospitals, disinfecting complex, there was a morgue, cemetery and other defunct buildings comprised of an infectious disease facility which processed newly arrived humans and livestock alike. The quarantine station began here in 1852 on what was a desolate, windy and very unwelcoming stretch of land. The extent of the facilities was then just a few houses left by the community of lime burners who had vacated the area. There have been several building phases since. The first buildings were simple wooden structures and in the late 1850s a jetty and a five, that's five, two-storey hospital blocks were erected. In the 1860s a communal bathhouse was built along with a wash house outfitted with dedicated facilities to deal with infected clothing. A second building phase occurred in the late 19th century. The quarantine station was now receiving animals as well as people and a jetty for this purpose was built at Observatory Point. Other infrastructure included a school for the residents and a crematorium. The latter serviced the leprosy patients who were housed well away from the main quarantine station. In 1901, when the Federation of Australia was proclaimed, the quarantine moved from state to Commonwealth control, and this resulted in a number of new processing policies. There's one which I thought was a cracker, the Fowl Luggage Receiving Store, Disinfection and Boiler Buildings. They were designed and became models for quarantine centres throughout the nation. The large centrally located admin building was erected in 1916. With its handsome facade, the building was an impressive addition to the station. 
except for an intense period during the Spanish flu pandemic in 1919, during which there was 12 wooden influenza huts which were built, the need for isolation at quarantine facilities began to lessen. The army was billeted here during World War II and the station became the officer cadet school between 1952 and 1985. A final building phase occurred in the 1960s, resulting in army barracks, a library and gymnasium. The quarantine, ceased, the quarantine station rather, it ceased its original role in 1980, but it continued to be used by the Army with the School of Army Health using the facility between 1985 and 1998. In the 1990s, the quarantine station also played host to 400 Kosovars, refugees from the Bosnian War of 1992 and 1995. During this time, the Kosovars were treated to Australian hospitality. They were given bilingual support, school and weekly allowance, and families were entertained with visits to museums, zoos, festivals and special occasions. By June 1999, it was declared safe for return home. In 2009, the quarantine station became part of the Point Nepean National Park. Now, Fort Nepean is one of the fortifications that protected Melbourne during World War I and World War II. Located at the very tip of the Mornington Peninsula, where the calm waters of Port Phillip meet the wild waves of the Southern Ocean and Bass Strait, here you can explore the extensive tunnel complex which connects the historic gun emplacements. Now, to visit Port, uh, Fort, rather, Fort Nepean is to step back into the boots of the soldiers who were once posted there. Located at the very end of the Mornington Peninsula, Fort Nepean was a critical part of Victoria's defences from the, uh, from the 1880s rather, until 1945. During the late 19th century, the government decided that Victoria's rich goldfields needed protection. Now, because of its strategic position, Fort Nepean became an important defence post. There were numerous military fortifications that were built, making Port Phillip one of the most heavily defended harbours in Australia. Now, the very first, this is a piece of history that you'll, you'll take to your next quiz night, the first shot of the British Empire in the First World War and the first Australian shot of World War II were fired from gun emplacement six, earning its entry into military history. These battlements were modified and used right up until the end of World War II, and you can wander around there. Today, Fort Nepean remains an outstanding example of the evolution of gun technology and Australia's early defence strategies. And there's lots to see, so allow at least an hour to discover what makes Fort Nepean so unique. And above and below ground, you will find gun emplacements. There's barracks, tunnels, ammunition, uh, magazines, an engine house, and even a bomb-proof room. Make sure you spare some time to see the fortifications at nearby Fort Pierce, Pierce Barracks, and Eagle's Nest. The landscape too and the views are pretty unique. You can look out over the rip where the generally calmer waters of Port Phillip meet the rougher seas of the Southern Ocean. And this is one of those places which is most dangerous sea lanes in the world and has claimed many vessels over the years. And the best part about uh, visiting the Port Nepean, um, or Point Nepean, rather getting in my ports, points and forts mixed up, um, visiting the National Park is absolutely fantastic because you can park your car and you can walk or cycle 
um, or as I said, you can jump onto the shuttle bus and explore plenty of the National Park. It's one of Victoria's most unique heritage sites, um, boasts a real fascinating collection of historic buildings and structures and located on a dramatic coastal scene as well. You can explore Fort Nepean and the quarantine station on foot or by bicycle and obviously you can enjoy a picnic overlooking Port Phillip Bay. It's a fantastic day trip near to Melbourne. And there's so much to see and do uh, throughout the National Park. You can do a walk from the quarantine station to Fort Nepean along Coles Track with stops at Observatory Point and Gunners Cottage. And that will also uncover many of the historical highlights of these uh, really unique plaques. You can get off the beaten track by taking a 1.8 kilometre range area walk which meanders through coastal scrub, a former rifle range and passes Monash Break and Light. The walk links to the quarantine station and Cheviot Hill. This area was actually used for military training by the Army from 1952 when they came to Point Nepean as the Officer Cadet School. Referred to as the Defence Reserve, many forms of training took place which included mostly firing of live arms, infantry weapons utilising rockets and rifles. Now, Parks Victoria and the Department of Defence completed a program to progressively clear much of this area which has allowed for the opening of the range area walk. Visitors can take the stairs to a viewing platform halfway up the Monash Light Tower and take in the sweeping views of the National Park, the bay, the ocean and the City of Melbourne skyline. Now, Port Nepean is also the site where former Australian Prime Minister Harold Holt disappeared while swimming at Cheviot Beach without a trace in December 1967. Just 500 metres west of Cheviot Hill, deviate 30 metres off the defence road to arrive at a viewing platform overlooking Cheviot Beach. A memorial, a memorial, rather, granite plinth on the approach to the viewing platform honours the legacy of this tragedy. Access to Cheviot Beach is not permitted for safety and conservation reasons too. Plenty of things to do in the area. Their Aboriginal history, well, Point Nepean is the traditional country of the Bunurong people who have lived on and around this important cultural place for over 35,000 years. The coastline has been an important source of shellfish and other foods and extensive shell middens that are reminders of the enduring association that traditional owners have with this area. With the uh, European arrival, Point Nepean has also evidence too of some of the earliest European settlement in Victoria. This includes pastoral activities and lime burning. Shepherd's Hut, which is located in the quarantine station, is one of the earliest intact limestone buildings in Victoria. Its cellar dates to 1845. Now, as I said earlier, established in 1852, the quarantine station was the major place for quarantine purposes in Victoria until 1979 and was closed in 1980. Animals were also quarantined here and you can see the remains of the jetty built for this purpose in 1878 at nearby Observatory Point. The beach here is a beautiful spot for a picnic. And the walk to Observatory Point is two kilometres or about 30 minutes along Coles Track from the quarantine station. While you're there, take in the Walter Pisterman Park, a walk rather, inland to nearby Gunners Cottage and Point Nepean Cemetery, where those who died uh, from in, in quarantine are actually buried. And if you're on a bicycle, you can continue along the Coles Track to Gunners Cottage. You're listening to the Road Less Travelled Podcast with me, Nikki Shea. The entrance to Port Phillip was once the most heavily fortified port in the Southern Hemisphere, and there are many colonial and commonwealth structures from 1880s to 1940s located around the park. 
Fortnapine is considered to be one of the best examples in Australia of a major fort complex exhibiting the changes in military engineering over both the 19th and the 20th century. The walk from Gunners Cottage to Fortnapine is approximately three kilometres or 45 minutes. On the way, you can explore the remains of Fort Pierce, Pierce Barracks and Eagle's Nest. Fort Pierce was established in 1911 and designed to take advantage of the 6-inch Mark 7 guns being introduced to coastal defences at that time. The Pierce Barracks site is where many of the army personnel stationed at Point Nepean actually lived, and Eagle's Nest was the site of Australia's largest disappearing gun. After World War II, soldiers were removed from the forts and the buildings and fortifications declared redundant. The area remained closed to the public and was used as an occasional firing range and training ground until 1988 when, as part of the bicentennial celebrations, control of the site was transferred to Victoria, declaring a national park and open to the public and, of course, the quarantine station became part of the national park in 2009. We'll take a break here on the Road Less Travel podcast. When we come back, we'll go into the disappearance at Cheviot Beach in 1967. Back with more in just a moment. The Road Less Travelled podcast is a proudly Australian, fiercely independent podcast hosted and produced by me, Nikki Shea, for Fat Cat Media. We receive no corporate payments, which means we rely on self-sufficient financial support. If you can and are able to, we would love you to support us via Patreon. Listen to the Road Less Travel podcast on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts and iHeartRadio. Be inspired with our seminars and motivational speaking. We really enjoy and receive a lot of satisfaction and overwhelming feedback in conducting seminars. This involves giving motivational speeches and inspiring people to challenge themselves and become better at what they want to become better at. Relying on years in the media plus a life-changing health issue, Nikki will challenge and transform her audiences. If you truly and honestly want to help someone reach their true potential, stop answering all their questions and solving all their problems. For further information, head to fatcatmedia.com.au or drop us an email, fatcat at iinet.net.au. You're listening to the Road Less Travelled podcast with Nikki Shea. On the 17th of December 1967, Harold Holt, the Prime Minister of Australia, disappeared while swimming in the sea near Portsmouth in Victoria. An enormous search operation was mounted in and around Cheviot Beach, but his body was never recovered. Holt was presumed to have died and his memorial service five days later was attended by many world leaders. It's generally agreed that his disappearance was a simple case of an accidental drowning, but a number of conspiracy theories surfaced. Most famously, the suggestion that he was a spy from the People's Republic of China and had been collected by a Chinese submarine. Holt was the third Australian Prime Minister to die in office after Joseph Lyons in 1939 and John Curtin in 1945. Holt was initially replaced in a caretaker capacity by John McEwen and then by John Gorton following a Liberal Party leadership election. Holt's death has entered into Australian folklore and was commemorated by, amongst other things, the Harold Holt Memorial Swimming Centre. So the background, Holt became Australia's Prime Minister in January 1966 following the retirement of Sir Robert Menzies. He was a career politician entering Parliament at the age of 27 and becoming a Government Minister at the age of 31. As with Menzies, Holt refused a security detail upon taking office, considering it unnecessary and potentially alienating to the general public. 
His stance would change, though, in two, after two incidents in mid-1966 when a window in his office was shattered by a sniper and then an assassination attempt was made on Arthur Corwell, who was the leader of the opposition. Holt grudgingly accepted a single bodyguard for his official duties but refused any protection whilst on holiday, regarding it as a violation of his privacy. His wife, Zara, later suggested that this was so he could hide his extramarital affairs. Holt was a keen outdoorsman and had a beach house at Portsea and at Bingle Bay in Queensland. He was introduced to spearfishing in 1954 and it soon became his preferred vacation activity. Holt wore a wetsuit so he could fish year-round and preferred either skin diving or snorkelling as he found air tanks burdensome and inauthentic. Once he had speared a fish, he would unzip his suit and place it inside, still bleeding, allowing him to continue fishing. According to his companions, Holt had an incredible power of endurance underwater and sometimes kept himself amused during parliamentary debates by seeing how long he could hold his breath. Although he could tread water for long periods, apparently he was not a strong surface swimmer. Now, several of Holt's friends confronted him about the dangers of his hobby, including his press secretary, Tony Eggleton, to whom Holt responded, Look, Tony, what are the odds of a prime minister being drowned or taken by a shark? On the 20th of May in that year, 1967, Holt had a close call while diving at Cheviot Beach on the Mornington Peninsula, where he became distressed and called for help. He was pulled ashore by his diving companions and he remained conscious, but he turned purple and vomited a large amount of sea water. Holt attributed the incident to a leaking snorkel and supposedly remarked, that's the closest I've ever been to drowning in my life. A few months later, on the 5th of August, which was also his 59th birthday, he was spearfishing at Dunk Island on the Great Barrier Reef. He spent 25 minutes chasing a large coral trout and eventually had to abandon the pursuit due to extreme shortness of breath. I can relate to that at the moment. Now, Holt had been in reasonably good health throughout his life, although he had had a family history of premature death. His father had died at the age of 59 and also his older brother had died at the age of 57. Holt suffered severe concussion in a road accident on in November 1955 in which the driver of his ministerial car was killed. In September of 1967, Holt began treatment for a painful shoulder injury that he had originally suffered playing football in his youth. He was prescribed, prescribed painkillers and twice-weekly physiotherapy. A few days before his death, he'd been briefly examined by his personal ph- physician who advised him to avoid overexerting himself and to cut back on swimming and tennis. Now, there's some speculation that, um, and a suggestion that Holt's judgment on the weekend of his death had been clouded by this medication in combination with work-related tiredness and stress. Morphine was named as the drug that he had been prescribed, although there was no direct evidence that indicated he'd taken it on the day of his death. Now, Holt's final cabinet meeting for 1967 began late on Thursday the 14th of December and ended early the following morning. He returned to the lodge in Canberra for a few hours sleep and then returned to his Parliament House office at 8.30 to finalise a press release. At 11am, Holt left Parliament House and was driven to the RAAF base where he boarded a military jet to Melbourne. His wife Zara stayed in Canberra to finalise preparations for the annual Christmas party. Now, on arriving in Melbourne, Holt and his personal secretary, Patricia de Lacey, were driven to his constituency office, and after dictating a few letters, he went to his home in St George's Road, Turak. 
There he informed the housekeeper that he would be spending the weekend at his beach house. He also carried with him a letter from the Liberal Party whip expressing concern at the performance of the government. Holt drove down to Portsea in his red Pontiac. He stopped at Sorrento on the way where he ran into his neighbour and received an invitation for evening drinks with Marjorie Gillespie. He spent about an hour with Gillespie and her husband Winton and then had dinner with his secretary who had driven down separately with Holt's clothes and provisions for the weekend. On Saturday the 16th of December, Holt rose early and ate a light breakfast. He did some gardening, made some phone calls and to his stepson and to his private secretary, inviting his stepson later down to Portsea. Holt played tennis in the afternoon and then spent some time with Nicholas and his family. In the evening, he attended a neighbour's cocktail party for about an hour and then returned home to host a dinner party with about a dozen guests. Holt again rose early on Sunday the 17th of December and after breakfast telephoned his wife. He drove down to the local general store where he bought insect repellent peanuts and the weekend newspapers. One of the headlines in the Australian was was to read PM advised to swim less, which detailed the latest advice from Holt's doctor, but whether Holt brought or read that particular paper is unclear. On returning home, Holt made plans for the rest of the day, which included a visit to Point Nepean, a barbecue lunch and an afternoon spearfishing trip. At 11.15am with four others and he, they set out, with, they set out to Point Nepean, where they hoped to watch the solo circumnavigator uh, Alec Rose pass through the rip into Port Phillip Bay. He was accompanied by Marjorie Gillespie, her daughter Viner, and two family friends of the Gillespies, Martin Simpson and Alan Stewart. It was a hot day and Rose's yacht was barely visible, so the group only stayed a short while before leaving. On the drive back to Port Sea, Holt suggested to the group that they stop at Cheviot Beach for a swim. It was about 12.15 and he wanted to cool down and work up an appetite before lunch. Holt knew the area well and swam there many times before. In 1960, he even salvaged a porthole from the SS Cheviot, the shipwreck that had given the beach its name. Holt did not hesitate to enter the water despite a large swell and visible currents and eddies. Stewart was the only other swimmer as the others considered it unsafe. Stewart stayed close to the shore and even in the shallows felt a strong undertow. However, Holt swam into deeper water and was dragged out to sea. The others called out to him, but he did not raise his arms or cry for help. He soon slipped under the waves and out of sight, and in a manner which Marjorie Gillespie described like a leaf being taken out, so quick and so final. Following Holt's disappearance, Stuart drove to the nearby Officer Cadet School, Port Sea, an Australian Army training facility. The school was virtually deserted as most personnel were on annual leave, but the Victoria Police were contacted and initiated what was to become one of Australia's largest search operations. The search for Holt's body began at 1.30pm when three amateur divers entered the water and found it too rough. They were soon joined by helicopters, watercraft, police divers and two naval diving teams. Little progress was made, though, due to the rough conditions and the limited equipment available. And by the end of the day, more than 190 personnel were involved, with operations based out of the Officer Cadet School. This number eventually increased to more than 340. The search resumed just before 5am on the 18th of December, despite strong wind, heavy seas and occasional rain. Working in shifts, 50 divers focused on the rock pools and ledges near where Holt had last been sighted. They were forced to free dive to minimise injury as they were continuously being driven against the nearby cliff face. Due to the change in the tide, the search was suspended at 8am but did not resume until mid-afternoon.
The following day's operations were also again hampered by the weather and conditions though improved on Wednesday the 20th of December, but by the following day most personnel were being withdrawn. The search for Holt's body was officially called off on the 5th of January 1968, although it had been gradually scaled back to the point where it was consisted of only daily beach patrols. Lieutenant Commander Phil Hawke, who led the HMAS Lonsdale diving team, later stated any chance of finding the Prime Minister was lost by Sunday night. Rumours of Holt's disappearance reached the media just after an hour after it occurred. The first conclusive report was made about 1.45 on Melbourne radio station 3DB. Zahra Holt was told of her husband's disappearance by one of his secretaries, Peter Bailey. A memorial service for Holt was held on Friday the 22nd of December at St Paul's Cathedral in Melbourne. Behind me you can hear the surf and it is really rough surf but today in the midst of June, winter in Melbourne. It is an absolutely glorious winter's day. There is honestly not a cloud in the sky. It's blue sky. The sun is shining. I've got my jacket off. It is just fantastic. I'm at Cheviot Beach on the Mornington Peninsula, Port Nepean in Melbourne. And on the 17th of December at this very location in 1967, Prime Minister Harold Holt went missing after swimming in the waters below at Cheviot Beach. Holt, he was a keen swimmer and snorkel diver who owned a holiday house in nearby Portsea. Cheviot Beach was out of bounds to the general public as it is today, but under special arrangement with the Department of Defence, Harold Holt would swim these chilly Bass Strait waters that he knew so well. He was accompanied by four friends. He went for a quick swim before lunch and shortly after it was realised that the Prime Minister could no longer be seen. Therein, Australia's biggest search operation to that date took place, but Harold Holt was never seen or heard from again. The disappearance created world headlines and fueled multiple conspiracy theories, including abduction, assassination and suicide. In 2005, a coronial inquest found that the Prime Minister accidentally drowned while swimming. The 59-year-old was the 17th Prime Minister of Australia and spent just two years as its leader. On that day, in the later days, 18th of December 1967, they said weather conditions meant low cloud and heavy rain have been hampering the search for the missing Prime Minister. So far, there has been no trace of Mr Holt, who has now been missing for 22 hours. So all that you're bound to find on a day like today is other tourists out for a wander around, people riding their bikes and walking. It is a very isolated area. As you can hear, the surf is thundering. I'm looking out down towards Cheviot Beach, why you'd go swimming down there, I have no idea. It is a surf beach. There is a little bit of a calmer area in amongst the rocks where he probably was scuba diving or snorkeling, um, probably spear fishing. But it's a pretty rough sort of place. It wouldn't be the spot that I'd actually go down and have a swim isolated. That is indeed it. And straight out in front of me lies Bass Strait. And it is indeed a very rough place. I certainly wouldn't go swimming there and you can... And in the report that we spoke about uh, a few moments ago and the disappearance of Harold Holt <clears throat> on that particular day, excuse me, one of his cohorts decided to get out because it was just too rough for them. So whatever happened to Harold Holt is we know that he didn't return back from the ocean, uh, presumed drowned. And as I said earlier, there's plenty of conspiracy theory- theories as well and there's been plenty of books written about it and there's been a couple of documentaries too. 
But that wraps up our discussion on Harold Holt and also wraps up our trek down to Point Nepean National Park. If you have the opportunity, if you're a Melbourne-bound person or if you're in Melbourne for a holiday, make sure you head down to the Mornington Peninsula, down through Rosebud, Rye and Sorrento and then down to Portsea and then check out uh, Point Nepean, Fort Nepean as well and uh, make, make sure that you allow the day for it and bring your push bike along as well. That wraps up this edition of the Road Less Travel Podcast. Trust that you've enjoyed it. Don't forget to shoot us some feedback and tell us if you like what we're doing, if you've got something you'd like us to share as well. We'd love to hear from you. You can drop me an email, fatcat at iinet.net.au. My name's Nikki Shea. You've been listening to the Road Less Travel, and I hope to catch you somewhere out there very soon on the road. Take care. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Thanks for listening. The Road Less Travelled is presented by Nikki Shea and produced by Fat Cat Media. 